0: entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi everyone, it's Nick here and welcome to today's show. So I thought we would switch things up a little bit. So scale-up your business always talks about the journey that comes post-startup. But I thought today, why don't we go back to the very beginning and let's talk about startup, but let's not just talk about startup, let's talk about startup failure. And I thought, you know what, this is not necessarily my zone of genius. So instead of me just giving you my opinion, which I'm sure you'd find some comedic value in, why don't we go to the very top, the top of the game in terms of business thinking, science, academia, and get that perspective. So I'm delighted to have on the show today, Mr. Tom Eisenman, who is a professor at Harvard Business School where he teaches entrepreneurship and he studies the management of new ventures. He's also the faculty chair of Harvard Innovation Labs, and he has been there since, I think, 1997, doing all sorts of different things around the MBA program that they have there about entrepreneurial leadership, product management, entrepreneurial sales, everything around that. And Today, specifically, as I said, we're going to talk about startup failure. We're going to talk about his book, which covers the topic, which is, again, aptly called Why Startups Fail. So what are you going to get out of this episode? You're going to get my opinion, okay? Can't can't get away from that. This This is the show. This is the show I host. But you're going to get me going backwards and forwards with someone who is absolutely at the top of studying the success and the failure of early stage businesses. So enjoy this. Even if you're in you know, the stage post-startup, you're in scale-up, there are things I guarantee in this episode today which you will be able to take away and action, improve, iterate, and it's going to help you in your business. So sit back, relax, enjoy me going head-to-head with Mr. Tom Eisenman from Harvard, and we are going to go all things startup. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I'm delighted today. I've got someone on the show I've been wanting to have a conversation with for some time. Tom Eisenman is a professor at Harvard Business School. He teaches entrepreneurship and studies the management of new ventures. And we are going to spend some time today talking about his fantastic Book. I'm going to say new book? What do you think, Tom? It's been out for a few months now. Uh, why startups uh, fail. Uh,
1: a- April first in the in the UK and uh, uh, March 30th in the US. So yeah, uh, C- a couple more of months. Month.
0: Why startups fail. This is why I wanted to have you on the show because we talk about scale up and we are going to we're going to talk about the difference between the two and all that stuff. But I've gone through your book in detail and you don't just talk about the startup journey. You talk about what happens through the stages and you talk about the mindset of failure and how to cope. So there's a lot of depth within this book, but Thank you for coming on the show to start with. And uh... Uh, my,
1: my, my pleasure. I should mention uh, to your UK listeners the uh, identical book, Why Startups Fail in the US, is called The Fail Safe Startup in the UK. So, um, I, I, I apologize for any confusion.
0: I did see that actually when I was playing around on Amazon. I thought, have you got two books doing the same thing? Here? No, it's it's,
1: <laughs> it's a same book. Um, it's uh, one of the quirks of the publishing system. The publisher gets to pick the title, and, and the UK publisher Penguin loved that title. So there uh, you
0: go. I, well, I like both. I like both, but I think it's it's a great topic, and it comes up a lot. And you know, of the you know three hundred thousand downloads of this of this podcast it comes up more often than you think so let's kick into it so first and foremost a little bit about you tom so you've been at harvard for a number of years i believe um just take us through kind of your journey personally both in academia and anything else that you've done business related
1: yeah so um academia started uh, it was my midlife crisis many um many people will get a red sports car um at age 37 i started a doctorate and um uh, studied, I thought, strategic decision making in big companies, but really, I was studying cable television entrepreneurs. And uh, that, put, that that so so so, I joined the Harvard Business School faculty after getting a doctorate, and uh, that was 24 years ago. So yeah, it's um, and uh, started off studying strategy in in, in um, tech companies, but but once I figured out, um, I. I uh, uh, the first time I taught startup management, actually how you how you um, validate the idea, assemble the team, um, raise the money, all that stuff, I just fell in love with that and that's that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years.
0: Wow, awesome. Well, let's let's get into it. Let's kick off with uh, the easy question first. In your definition, what is failure?
1: Yeah, um, so there's a price you pay for having academics on the on the podcast. Uh, we love definitions. So, and 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 most most listeners will think, well, isn't it obvious? Um, but it's not. Um, does failure require a shutdown? Nope. There's lots of projects that run a natural life, like making a movie, and uh, and sh- shut down naturally. Uh, does it require? Um, um, that you go out of business not at all right I mean a lot of companies go bankrupt but they be they, they remain going concerns they generate enough cash to, to survive after restructuring so the definition I use in the book is investors did not and never will get their money back um, and, and uh, it's fair to ask why do we care only about investors isn't the entrepreneur important and um, the answer is yes of course and the entrepreneur um, very much stays on the radar but um, I mean, a key fact is if you get to a late-stage startup, um, say, five years out, uh, something like only 40% of late-stage startups are still run by a founder or CEO. Um, the, 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 the role will outgrow the individual in many, not every time, but in many cases.
0: What was that again? Um, Sorry, Tom, just to jump back. Was that 40%? 40% um,
1: are still run by the founder, CEO, wow. uh, and 60% have, a, have brought in a professional CEO, And so for that reason, there's just a whole bunch of stakeholders involved and and we can't look just at the entrepreneur's goals, whether it be to build something great or or generate personal wealth. I mean, the last uh, constituency we ought to worry about if we're asking about failure is society at large. And and, um, it is possible to be financially successful and build a horrible company we all wish would disappear. You know, it, it has addictive products or exacerbates income inequality or pollutes, and it's possible to fail financially and generate benefits for society. Um, employees who've learned to do something and they go on to to build great things elsewhere, um, or just um, an entrepreneur who shows other entrepreneurs what not to do—that's actually of some value. No, no, no return, no spillover benefits um, um, to society is realized by the uh, by the investors. So, um,
0: I, I can see why you've done it that way. So, without a real clear definition, <laughs> we'll focus yeah. it on that. But of course, lots of startups don't necessarily take investment. I know in your background with technology and that—that that is pretty damn common. If not crucial, uh, but do you think about other types of startups as well? The ones that are bootstrapped, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. In fact, that definition, so I translated into a boot for a bootstrap. I
0: assume that's the term you use in the UK, too. Yeah, we use bootstrapping as well. Yeah, where it's not where you're not taking external investment or certainly not outside, yeah. yeah. So,
1: so for a bootstrapper, the definition is you got to sort of figure out the sweat equity the person's put in, so they could have been earning a salary somewhere else, so take that amount of money that they could have earned somewhere else, and um. You know and, and um, if the sweat equity plus the cash generated out of the business either through dividends um mm-hmm. and, and, you know in a salary that the entrepreneur will pay himself or herself um, or just the proceeds from the sale of the business um you, you, you can do the same kind of calculation does, does, do, do the do the proceeds um uh, equal the investment where the invest where a big part of the investment is sweat equity and personal savings and so forth works works exactly the same way
0: Okay, good. Well, let's get into a couple of things around you know, why startups fail. Before we do that, I just want to jump back to one thing you said, which was interesting. I, I often mention that uh, someone who starts a business is not necessarily the best at scaling them. So obviously, my focus is on scale-up. And I often say it's around the identity shift, both a skill set and a mindset. So you might have a creative, passionate you know, startup entrepreneur who sees a problem and just goes at it, right? But as soon as they have to start to build teams, bring structure, bring process in, then their zone of genius starts to wave. Absolutely. So I'd like to get into that as we go through the transition. So hold yeah, on to that. Yeah. Thought. <laughs> and, and, and,
1: and just just to, to sort of build on that, a um, big surprise in, the, in this research was the scaling startups. Um, by my definition, investors lose money. Um, it's something like one in three of, of venture capital backed startups um, fail to get a positive return for their investors. And, and that's pretty disconcerting. And the reasons are very, very different. They have to do with the, the mindset shift that you're talking about. Fantastic.
0: Okay, great. Let's get into it. I'm I'm eager. So so let's start at the very beginning because we're going to go through a bit of the journey. Do you want to first start off by what you think the the stages are of a business? So that, let's call it business life cycle or business growth, and then let's go back sure. to startup. Um,
1: yeah, um, um, finding the ideas obviously is is the first step, um, and and uh, uh, it'll just pop into some entrepreneurs' heads, and some entrepreneurs will actually search for an idea, uh, and then uh, validating the concept, um, um, which um, uh, happens in some sense side by side with I'm going to use the word resources, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's an academic word. By that I mean a, a co-founder, the rest of the team, um, outside capital if you have to raise money. And um, you know, a good definition of entrepreneur is somebody who does something new, pursues an op- new, a novel opportunity without all the resources initially you need to, to actually capture it. And, and by resources, I mean team and money. And, and in many cases, that'll include partners, right? Because um, if, if you're resource poor and other people out there, big companies have distribution channels or, or technologies you need, um, you're going to rent that stuff from them and hope they'll cooperate. So so resource mobilization and and, and exploring the opportunity goes side by side. And, 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 and there's an interplay, right? You can't really um, attract the resources until you've proven you've got some proof of concept, but you can't get proof of concept until you've got some some, um, set of resources, catch 22, right? can't get a job without experience, can't get experience without a job. Uh, And then then, um, uh, if we use the term, the the lean startup crowd likes the term product market fit. Um, Simple as it sounds, you got a product that fits the market and, and, and shows the potential to be profitable and grow. Uh, with product market fit, then you can start to um, then you can start to scale, and and, and there's this zone where um, scaling is painful, growing pains, you know, like a teenager, um, uh, where um, you're adding mid- layers of middle management, layer l- layering process, all all the stuff that turns this um, peanut uh, in, into into uh, into a real company.
0: Got it. Okay, great. Well, let's get into the um, um, what you talk about in the book. You've got a couple of different frameworks here. So you, you kick off the book talking about this sort of diamond. Uh, what do we call it exactly? It's the diamond and square framework. Yeah. E- everyone everyone from a great business school has to have a framework, Tom. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you.
0: <laughs> but I think, I think the good thing, what I'd like you to do is not necessarily talk to the framework specifically, yeah. but let's apply it. So, yeah. you know, around the concept of early stage failure.
1: Yeah, um so so um um the diamond has four corners the square has four corners this is just a way some some of the listeners may be familiar with um the business model canvas it's, it's another way to do the same thing I, I didn't love the canvas because i thought it was too complicated in some places and too abstract in others so i invented my own but um uh, anybody who's used the canvas this is this is the same idea um and uh, the, the, the the four elements of the diamond are the value proposition to customers the go-to-market plan, how are you going to make customers aware of your thing, technology and operations, how are you going to build it, make it, and service it, and then the cash flow formula, how are you going to do all that in a way that makes money? And That's the opportunity, the diamond, so value, sort of the mnemonic here is um, the diamond stands for the value, and then the square is all, sort of think of it as the platform you build on the resource providers, co-founders, rest of the team, investors, and partners, and um, the argument is uh, that all has to be in dynamic alignment. It, it, it all has to fit together. Um, and so what you see is uh, um, one failure pattern. So, so, so the book presents six failure patterns. Three are early stage, so mm-hmm. when you're still looking for product market fit, and three are late stage when you're scaling and, and run into problems. And um, uh, one of the disconcerting early stage patterns, I call it good idea, bad bedfellows. And, and the notion there is the entrepreneur actually has a good idea. Um, and uh, they've done some, if you will, lean startup testing, minimum viable product tests. They've validated demand. They've proved that, that potential customers want this thing. Um, but for a um, complicated set of reasons, they can't get the, the players together, the, the, the square. The, 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 there may be co-founder, dis, co-founder conflict. Um, they can't figure out who's gonna be the CEO. Um, the team may be short on skill or short on attitude, or um, in the worst case, both. Um, that's a real problem, but it does happen. Uh, the investors may be um, have conflicting motives, sort of push the company to do um, things that don't make sense. Um, or just not adding much value. Um, it can be an adversarial relationship and, and entrepreneurs constantly have problems with partners. So um, you know, getting a big company to pay attention to you and, and, and do a deal on terms that are gonna make sense for, for, for the entrepreneur as well as for the big powerful company. So that's the, that's a, uh, an example of the um, diamond being promising, uh, but the square being, um, if you will, out of whack, and um, you have to have both, so you you can't actually capture the value from the diamond. It's um, funny, um, yeah.
0: on that first one that like that resonates a lot with me. I was um I was effectively the turnaround guy for over a decade in private equity firms, and so I would go into into businesses that already had decent products. They already had they're already businesses, right? They'd already been acquired. But quite often when I was going in there operationally, so I wasn't going in there with a spreadsheet, I was going in there I kind of look at the culture, look at the people, look at the dynamics, to your point, around that. And quite often it was the changes within those dynamics that would make the difference, either moving people in or out or changing some of the more external relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the late stage patterns actually gets to exactly that. I call it help wanted. Um, and, uh, and in that pattern, um, the culprit is a missing manager in a key function. Um, so one of the all all of the all of the failure patterns are illustrated by case studies Harvard business school we love the case I, study I I, I, method. Would, I
0: would be disappointed Tom if we <laughs> been- <laughs>
1: Yeah and this this particular company is a they they um it's online home retailing of home furnishing so look around you right now you know the couch the chairs the tables and so forth it is um murderously difficult to ship that stuff um w- without damaging it and having it arrive on time. And you need a vice president of operations who knows how to ship big things. And um, it's, it's not like your Amazon book order where if the books come two days early, you're delighted. If your couch comes two days early, it's it's sitting out on the street. In yes, the rain. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so this particular company, um, they did a fantastic job of generating demand, which is a problem in home furnishing, sort of getting people to repurchase and, and, and so forth. Uh, they did that. They had that nailed. But the CEO had a background in in marketing and media, knew nothing about operations. And it took him three tries to find the vice president of operations who could get the job done. In the meantime, they're burning through cash. And then uh, unfortunately for them, uh, just as they had the problem solved, in 2015 the e-commerce capital markets slammed shut. Uh, venture capitalists stopped putting money into um, even healthy e-commerce companies, and so this company was still still burning enough cash at the time they had to liquidate.
0: Wow! And but what just to jump a little bit into the specifics, when they when that CEO found that operational partner, the VP, what happened then? Did things start to click into gear regardless of the external factor?
1: Uh yeah yeah no they um I mean it was three tries first try i mean so it of made a rational move here was somebody who didn't have operating experience the first um vp hired was a great candidate to be a chief operating officer um a generalist um but had never sh- had never run logistics had never shipped big things ouch and um okay. to add insult to injury you'll you'll appreciate this they had to put in every startup has to add a whole range of systems. This is an ERP system, enterprise resource planning uh, in an e-commerce company, keeping track of orders, keeping track of inventory, keeping track of the customer service where They picked the wrong system a- and they picked a system that couldn't scale with their rapid growth in demand. And they just lost track. They had no idea what was in inventory. Customers would call and say, where's my couch? And they would say, we, we think we sent it, but they hadn't sent oh, it.
0: Man. Okay. Know, I, and I so it was that. a
1: disaster. And, and they lived with that disaster. The second VP actually came from Netflix. And and many listeners will remember the day when Netflix was not streaming video, but they were sending red envelopes with DVDs inside them. So this guy had actually done shipping, but he'd done shipping of tiny envelopes, not couches. And and he was a big company guy who um, brought in big company... um, ways of managing. So, the numbers always look great on whatever he was asked to fix. But, but the entrepreneur said, you know, he's not thinking like an owner. Um, he's only worried about this area. And he, he's, he's, he's massaging the numbers in ways he's getting the job. So, so he made some big improvements, um, sort of tightened the screws down on the, on the, the supplier partners and, and sort of held their feet to the fire um and started to find a better erp system so the third guy just nailed it he, he had the perfect background for it but there's um, a lot in
0: that I, yeah the reason i wanted to unpack that you know just to go back to your um uh, your framework as well so you've got pretty strong proposition you've got good go-to-market right but the operational side is failing because the wrong wrong people wrong wrong seat yeah. so to speak and therefore then no, therefore burning cash no profit
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and and um and, and if your investors will bridge you, will, will sort of throw you a, li- a capital lifeline, um, that's great. But um, if they're freaked out about what's going on um, in their sector and they're not making any investments, you got a big, big problem on your hands.
0: There's two, two painful memories that you reminded me in that, in that very short story. One was that I missed out on investing in a business called Love Film that was bought by Amazon Prime, which was the kind of competitor to Netflix. Don't ask about the amount of money that sold for. Uh, and the second one is that when you said about the big company guy, I remember I, I went into a private equity firm a few years back where they had done just that, hired the best sales guy they could from, I think it was Oracle, and small business. And the whole thing was a car crash exactly yeah to um, the 25 you know, page report um, was great that he wrote for the board but of course <laughs> he didn't sell anything in about 18 months
1: i think a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake and they often get pushed to do this by their investors um, um ben horowitz who's a, one of the partners of the venture capital firm andreessen horowitz has a wonderful blog post about the the peril of bringing big company people in and, and he points out that they are interrupt driven that basically if you work in a big company you sit at your desk and you get a flurry of emails and phone calls coming in and text messages and your job is just basically to triage all that stuff like i'm going to deal with this problem i'm going to say yes to these people and no to that people i'm going to ignore this email and if you go into a startup there's no flurry of emails coming at you you have to make the things happen like if if you sit there and wait for things to happen in in a startup um, you're going to be twiddling your thumbs all day long so um, there's a it can be a real cultural mismatch
0: yeah i love that all right. There's a couple of other areas you've got here as well, which is false starts and false promises. Um, so let's go into false starts. Um, just explain that.
1: Yeah, this is the big one. This is for early stage startups. This is probably the leading cause of death. And uh, sorry, <laughs> it's, That's okay. it We're, it we can
0: say death here. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: and, uh, and, and false start here is just like in track and field or swimming where the athlete um, literally jumps the gun trying to get an edge and, and gets penalized as a result. Here, the entrepreneur, so eager to build and sell, um, jumps right into engineering as fast as possible. And uh, the first version of the product, surprise, surprise, uh, doesn't meet customer needs. And this all takes four months, you know, pick a number um, to build, launch, see if it's working. And then when it's not working, figure out what to do next. And that entrepreneur has skipped. Four weeks of upfront research where you talk to customers, it, you know, this is not hiring a market research firm. This is just getting out and, and, and meeting people who might be your customers in the future to make sure you've got a strong unmet customer need. And then thinking like a design, a good designer, um, there's always multiple ways to, to solve the problem and, and prototyping those without doing a lot of engineering work and getting some feedback on the different solutions to figure out if you've got both the right problem and the right solution. So skipping that upfront research, they, they've made a bad trade. They've, they've traded four bad months, you know, in, in, in exchange for not investing upfront four weeks of, 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 of upfront research. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you can pivot. And, and these entrepreneurs will, they think they're following lean startup practices because they're getting market feedback and quickly pivoting. And that's good. They should do that. But they could have skipped that first flawed version of the product and got right to a better one. And so if you've only, if you're bootstrapping and you've only got one year to make it work, if you've wasted the first four months on a flawed first version of the product, you're toast.
0: And, and why did they do that? You mentioned about there's that eagerness to kind of get to the end game, but yeah, does that cloud their judgment?
1: It goes right to the mindset of an entrepreneur. Um, the identity of an entrepreneur is somebody who makes things happen. Um, and, and what could feel more natural if you're gonna be an entrepreneur than getting started, just do it, um, just get going. So they feel like they're being a good entrepreneur. They may actually feel like they're not only a good entrepreneur but a smart entrepreneur because they're going to follow lean startup, minimum viable product. We're going to put a product into the hands of customers and get feedback. All true. Lean startup also says there's a first phase of lean startup, which is customer discovery. You know, bef- before you actually start the engineering, and and, and so um, a lot of entrepreneurs are engineers. Engineers love to build things. So you know, there's the bias. A lot of my MBAs are not technically trained, but they hear correctly um, over and over that to succeed as an entrepreneur, you need great product. How do you get great product? You need great engineers. They're good at networking. So they go out and find an engineering team. They find a technical co-founder. They will hire a vice president of engineering. They'll raise enough money to outsource the engineering work. They too. So whether technical or non-technical, there's a strong, strong bias to to just get started. And um, and it feels good. Um, and so it it actually takes a lot of discipline to to slow down a bit at the beginning and make sure it's also the period you know particularly if you're you're working a day job and earning a salary Stretch that out a little bit. Unless you're in a race, you think somebody's going to discover your opportunity and steal it from you while you're studying, and that does happen. That's that's real in some in some markets, but most of the time, that's not a problem. Um, it's a real luxury to um, to be studying a, 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 an opportunity while somebody's paying you a salary. One of the big my my, my um, uh, case study for bad bedfellows is an apparel company. Uh, two two former students of mine. Um, wanted to create a company that would have, um, they were tall and they had a hard, hard time finding work clothes that fit them well and look good. So they wanted to do um, affordable, stylish, and better fitting work apparel for young professional women. Neither of them had worked in apparel uh, design and manufacturing. Uh, they were both management consultants so, so many uh, MBAs will out of business school, uh, but their dream was to launch this business. They did, uh, they quit their jobs. And once they quit their jobs, they had, to, they had to start building the product um, and and, and uh, without the industry experience there's a big lesson from this research project um, just how important industry experience is in some startups but not all startups and, and and for the entrepreneur it's really crucial to understand if you're in one of those sectors where you just have to know things about about the about the business you're building food and beverage i'll bet a lot of of your listeners are are uh, are, are doing that, man, that's a place where you really need to know things. Um, well,
0: it's about happening. being, it's about being externally focused as much as anything, isn't it? So, so by that, you can have someone who's an expert who kind of knows the market, knows the industry, or you have to be very, very good at looking output, you know, because yeah. one of the things I've um, found again, the last certainly three or four years of doing this podcast and interviewing all sorts of investors and founders is the pace of change is so rapid now. That you might have, you know, to use the lean startup um, frame uh, narrative, you might have product market fit, but that product market fit might be obsolete in six to nine months. And so, totally. And you know, the other thing, just to bring into that, is when you're scaling, quite often you you go a bit more insular because you're building teams, you're building process, you're building structure. So your eye, you know, leaves the external, and so all of a sudden you can, you know, that one thing alone <laughs> could could just suddenly, you know, your idea might have been great, but now it just doesn't doesn't matter anymore.
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I mean, with scaling, not only can the the market needs change fast, um, but your first wave—and this is a big lesson too from from, from the from the book—you um, your success with early adopters may not be replicated as you go to the mainstream customers. Mm, yeah, of course. Um, that, that that that's a big um, a, a big source of failure, where the entrepreneur is. That's the false promise, the false positive. It's the same same as. Um, COVID testing, we're all used to that, right? Entrepreneurs are vulnerable to false negatives and false positives. A false negative can be tragic, right? The entrepreneur throws in the towel, quits. Um, They get a signal that their thing isn't working. It's it's a flawed signal. And two years later, they um, read that some entrepreneur has gone public, um, you know, and and is worth a billion dollars doing exactly the same thing. And I could have, would have, should have. That's the false negative. The false positive is... um, is also tragic. Um, the, the, every, every entrepreneur needs early adopters. Um, there's often customers who are foaming at the mouth, enthusiastic for what you're doing. And it's you, you love them, you need them, you love them, you relate to them as an entrepreneur. Um, you can expand too aggressively in their direction, e- either building a product for them or just assuming that the mainstream of, of the market will have the same enthusiasm for what you're doing. And, and, and they probably won't. You'll probably have to discount the product. Um, you um, you'll have to mark whereas the early adopters may have spread the word um, um, with each other and, and, and required no investment in marketing to to attract them, your mainstream customers you're going to have to spend money on marketing. And so by definition the, the as you scale, the customers um, are, are going to be uh, from a profit standpoint, um, less revenue, more cost um, and, and that squeeze can be super painful.
0: Got it. Okay. Well, before we move into the later stage stuff, what's the, what's the summary at that early stage? Again, more tips for people who are starting businesses at this stage. What what are the things they have to be considering to be successful based on those three watchouts?
1: Yeah. Just um, three things from those patterns. Um, If you're in, if you're in um, an an industry where domain expertise is super important, like apparel, like furniture, shipping, um, like food and beverage, uh, make sure either you have the expertise for somebody on the team or an advisor. Can, somebody somebody needs to be able to tell you what to do, number one. Um, and then, by the way, that's not important in every business. I could name lots and lots of businesses where you'd, when you launched Instagram, you didn't need to have worked for years in, in a photo sharing company or for Kodak, right? Um, Instagram was just magic and, and, and it would explode uh, no matter um, what the experience was of the people doing it. Um, so know if you need experience, number one. Number two, make sure you do that upfront research so you, to avoid the false start and, and resist the temptation to dive in too quickly. And number three, just um, be careful about assuming that, that your early customers are your mainstream customers and, and be careful about expanding too aggressively it, it, it to, to serve them.
0: Do you have any, um, any research that um, suggests how many iterations a product needs to go through. <laughs> I know it's, um, it's, it's very it arbitrary. Varies,
1: varies all over the place. I, I actually, I did a survey of 470 early stage founders. Uh, some, of many of whom were successful. Many of whom um, either had failed or were uh, on the verge of failing, and asked them exactly this question, um, and. Um, it's a Goldilocks thing. I'm sure um, in the UK, you must have Goldilocks and the three bit porridge is not too hot, not yeah, too cold. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, uh, so you just want to pivot at the right frequency. There are entrepreneurs who pivot too quickly. Um, it's, it's the equivalent of a short attention span. They, they sort of get a signal and they overreact to it. Um, and there are entrepreneurs who are too stubborn and, and you know, they just will persist in the face of signals that say what they're doing isn't working. So, um, it, you know, it, it's, it, it sounds like a professor's answer, um, but you know, did, some I, entrepreneurs will nail it on the first try and they should just continue doing what they're doing. Um, some will need three tries. And if three is the right number, don't do five and don't do
0: zero. So, I didn't think there'd be a really um, precise answer, Tom. I, <laughs> no. I, I think it's about seven. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm talking, t- I mean, I'm not talking tech. I'm talking tweaks of, you know, marketing messaging, you know. No, stuff.
1: no, but those, they all count because everyone, um, you know, you got to train, got to train your customers, got to train your employees. And and the, the more you scale, the harder those pivots become. Um, you know, you got to put a lot of energy into changing things inside a bigger company.
0: All righty. Let's, um, as we sort of get to the the sort of final stage of our conversation today, I want to talk about the later stage failure because this is scale up your business. <laughs> so a lot of people yep. are in the scale up phase. Uh, I know you've got a framework here as well, but just take me through the, the high level here, how it changes when you start to go into the later stages and what some of the watchouts are around that area.
1: Yeah. Um, um, the big, the big change here, of course, I'm sure you talk about it all the time on the podcast is, um, it, the, the, the startup is turning into um, a mature company and mature companies need process and structure um, yeah. and entrepreneurs hate process and structure. So uh, uh, they are often like Peter Pan, you know, the, 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 they don't want to grow up. And, and uh, uh, so the um, trick is figuring out the, the, um, the right pace at which to introduce. And by structure, I mean, layers of middle managers. You now, you, you, you need to bring in specialists. The early stage firm is all about generalists who, who can do a little bit of everything and who will dive in. Um, it's like six year olds, um, we call it a soccer ball, you know, sort of on a football, you know, they just swarm around the ball. Um, that's, those are the employees in an early stage startup. Later stage, you have specialists, performance marketing, customer service, the warehouse and so forth. And, um, and, and it can be a huge um, challenge to find the right people, um, and uh, make sure they fit in. And, and, and then you have frontline workers who need a middle manager. Um, and um, you have the old guard, the people that were present at the creation sort of wondering, like, what do I do now? I don't actually have the, the specialty skills. How do I fit in? And these newcomers don't really seem to understand our mission. They weren't here when all this was created. They never worked side by side with the founder. And so you get cultural conflict. The, meanwhile, the specialists are saying, these people have no idea what I do. And um, this one over here is sitting on stock options worth $2 million and, and I'm drawing a measly salary um, you know, because I just arrived. And, and uh, so it can be, there can be a lot of cultural conflict. There can be um, uh, bad decisions about which processes and which systems to put in place. Um, it can really be a mess.
0: At what point is, no, it's great. It's great. And we do cover, I have covered a lot of those things because I sort of say, you know, it can be, it can be chaotic in the beginning, but it can be exciting, right? It can be a lot of fun, but then it, it becomes more complex because you've got more, more moving parts. And, and I yeah. focus a lot, I've used the word a couple of times on precision. How do you build the machine? How do you get that working? But there's so many different components, but I want to go back to your, you know, the, the uh, statistic we spoke about, about, you know, 40% beforehand, um, make it through the stages. If if you're a founder going through scale up, at what point do you make that, or when do you realize you may not like the idea, but that you think you should bring someone else in, who might be able to take the baton, and take yeah, the company next? time?
1: I um, I, I think that a good signal is if you find yourself drawn um, to pulling off a few of your team members to work on something new, um, because you just love the the um, the, the rhythm of of Discovery um, and creation. So you often find founders working on side projects inside companies that are supposed to be um, building precision and, and and scaling up. And um, you know, if what you really love is is um, is 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 the zero um, stage, uh, you know, the, the 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 very early stage of figuring out something new, um, that's a, that's a sign you ought to hand off the CEO job to somebody who can actually run the thing.
0: Okay. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I often call that the identity shift, as we spoke about beforehand. Um, but lots of founders want to hang on to it. In fact, I've, I'm working with a couple at the moment who have recognised they need to do that, um, but then working out what they're going to do so they still feel relevant and involved yeah. is the challenge. But again- yeah,
1: it's it's worth saying, and I'm sure you've talked about this that um, it's not always the founder CEO's choice at this stage. If you've, if you've raised outside capital, um, you know usually with every round of outside capital you get a new member of your board of directors and at some point, if you've raised enough money by scaling, um, those investors are gonna outnumber you on the board of directors. And the job of the board of directors is to choose hire and fire the CEO. So
0: um, they may may
1: be the ones letting you know that it's it's time to find a new job.
0: Well, I I got involved recently, um, I'm gonna call it a a divorce of the cap table because there were so many people, (laughs) 16 different competing entities. And what actually happened is the CEO and the, and the leadership team couldn't run the business anymore because of the amount of distraction that was happening there. So they had to reset. Yeah. So they actually got an investor to come in to buy everyone else out. That, um, uh, that's brilliant, I think. It, it, you know, I think
1: one thing most many entrepreneurs don't realize is when you get to that stage, you, you have scaled. The um, first investors in have such a low basis for the, 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 the their stock price that, um, they've purchased all they really want you to do is not screw up. I um, you're doing great. Just, just keep going. And the late stage investors have paid a very high price for their equity, and so they're only going to get an attractive return if you can double or triple the business again. You're already big. You know, how do you? Uh, if you're in the U.S., how do you um, double or triple again? You go to Europe. Um, sounds risky. Um, you launch a fundamentally new product line. Sounds very risky. So. So there can be huge fights on the board of directors between um, based on when they when they came into the company.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, really good. All right, let's finish up our conversation. Um, we started off defining failure, um, and I know that the last part of your book is really about how to fail or how to handle failure. So let's let's go there to finish off today, if that's fine. And just some tips again, some of your insights, thoughts around this area.
1: Yeah. So um, what entrepreneurs should know here is. Um, um, one of the hardest choices they'll have to make if they're leading a struggling startup is whether and when to pull the plug. Um, mm. it, it turns out, as, as I've talked to um, dozens scores of entrepreneurs um, who failed, uh, they'll often say, I wish I had um, shut the thing down sooner. I let it go too long. And and, and it's important, I think, for the entrepreneurs to understand there's a bunch of reasons for doing that. There's a lot of moves you need to make in the end game um, as you you try to turn the company around. Uh, You'll try pivots and they take, the bigger you are, the um, more energy they take and the longer it takes to sort of figure out if they're working. Um, You will try to raise money, that takes time. You'll try to get more money from your existing investors, a bridge loan, for example. Um, You will try to sell the company. And when you do, um, you're going to get an enthusiastic response. Every competitor in your field will want to take a look at you, sort of meet your employees, sort of see what you're paying them, et cetera, et cetera. So it'll feel good for a while. And They're really just kicking the tires and, and, and they may or may not be serious. If they are serious, they're going to drag you out because they want to wound you so they can get the price down without killing you. Um, and so all that takes time to play out. And the, the other thing to understand is just the, um, the, you know, there are a lot of, Pressures the, the identity of an entrepreneur again. It goes back to mindset. Is one who persists. We want entrepreneurs to be persistent. So if you shut down, are you a good entrepreneur? And you may just keep going just because that's what people expect you, and that's what you expect of yourself. And and um, and, and so it goes like this. People are depending on you, right? Your employees actually, um, you know, they support their families based on, on on the pay you generate, and you feel an obligation to them. So for all these reasons, I think entrepreneurs are inclined to run too long, and 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 they really should. I mean, when should you shut the thing down? When you're out of moves, uh, when you can't figure out what to do next, when you hate your job. I mean, I, I, in that in that end game, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, while they while they. Um, had passion at the beginning, it's, it can just be exhausting. And there's no point if, if, you, if you think the odds of a turnaround are, are becoming vanishingly small and you're not having fun, you're not challenged, you're not learning, stop. Um, and, and, uh, and, 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 you, and you wanna time it so you can shut down grace, what I say gracefully. And, and by gracefully, I mean, there's an a temptation to just keep trying things, hoping for a miracle until the money literally runs out. And then employees are owed money. Um, vendors who've sent you things are owed money. Um, customers who placed a deposit don't get their money back. And you don't want that to happen because that's how reputations are destroyed and relationships get ruined. So you want you want to time things so that you have a graceful shutdown. And, and that requires you to have a real um, strong sense of the commitments you've made and, and, and the cash you have left and how long it's gonna last. And then um, having failed, um, I think there's uh, there's good advice in the book on, on uh, how you can heal, um, how you can learn from the experience and how you can figure out whether to do it again. And, and, and I think a, lo- a lot of entrepreneurs make mistakes in this phase um, and, and don't learn much from the failure. It's a very natural human response to blame everybody else. Um, my co-founder um, disengaged, my investors pushed me to do something stupid. Um, the capital markets evaporated. You know, I couldn't raise money. My, my competitor was irrational. Uh, the regulators did did something crazy, and some of those things may be true. Maybe all of them are true. In fact, sometimes it isn't the entrepreneur's fault. Um, that hundreds of thousands of businesses were shut down due to COVID for no, um, and 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 the entrepreneurs weren't to blame. But usually, um, you know, that, that entrepreneur chose the investors, chose the co-founders, and, and they need to confront and, and figure out what their responsibility was. Because it's true that an entrepreneur who actually understands their role in the failure, what they did wrong, what they would do differently next time, and can explain that to investors next time to team members next time is going to be far more likely to be able to bounce back and, and build another business and, and build a better business.
0: And there's a, there's a huge, you know, we'll, we'll finish with the concept again of mindset, but there's a huge conflict within even how you describe a lot of that, because as you said, you know, a lot of the the people who are successful as entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, the grit, the resilience to keep going, you know, it's not a failure until I stop. It's only It's only a failure if I stop, right? So I'm going to keep going, keep going, which is a great trait. We want that. But then there's a point where it's not sensible, right? Yeah. And then we talked a little bit about victim mentality. You know, it's other people's fault, but we want entrepreneurs to own the, the decisions. So it's mindset. People often ask me, what you know, how important is mindset in business? And I say, it's the game. It's the yeah. game because how you manage your emotions that then allow you to make the right choices yeah, you know, is- um,
1: I, I'd Nick, exactly, one hundred percent. I think I think you're right on, and and I'd add to those um, inherent conflicts. So you need both, and and it's crazy. The other conflict is at the beginning. Um, we need somebody who is super enthusiastic, can bring the passion, can ex- can sell the concept, sell it to investors, sell it to, but odds are very, very high at the beginning that whatever they're talking about is wrong. And, and we need somebody who's flexible enough, having invested all that emotional energy and all that ego in selling this thing passionately, um, who can then say, um, well, yeah, we tried it. We ran this experiment. And remember that thing I told you about? Now we're going to do something different. <laughs> that, that takes a real mindset shift and, uh, and, and real flexibility. So Uh, I have the deepest respect for entrepreneurs who can do, who who, who can balance all all those mindset pressures.
0: Absolutely. Well, listen, listen, Tom, it's been absolutely fabulous having you on the show today. And just to thank you on behalf of my audience and also all the entrepreneurs out there for the work that you've done. Um, Your book, I'm going to give you both titles. So it's Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success. Um, That's the US title. And then in the UK, it's the fail safe startup with the fail scribbled out on the cover as as I'm looking on Amazon here. Um, Where can people find you, Tom, Um, or, you know, find any more of your work and those sort of things? Um,
1: uh if you just uh, search my name in Harvard Business School, you'll find my bio and everything I've ever written um, on the school's website. and on Twitter I'm um, Eisenman with a T in front Tysonman on Twitter. Tysonman
0: got it. Okay Wilson, well, thank you once again for coming on the show today. Um, I very much knew I'd enjoy this conversation and it is absolutely delivered. so thank you. Thanks. Man.